When we perceive that which we have no means to comprehend, what should we do? In moments that lead us to believe that we could not possibly be seeing what we know we are, how are we meant to react? There is no good answer to either of these questions, aside from the passing knowing that you should bring the memories of those moments to me. Today, I report to you on the tale of two men who did just that, bringing us all a look into the moments where our perceptions come into question and our grasp on what is real begins to slip. Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I'm Peyton Zignego with Channel Veil, vale, lifting up that which divides the known from the unknown. We live in a time of plague. Of course, humans really always have, if you look back through the pages of your history books. Or, if you are a person who doesn't believe in books, then I suppose you can use the intangible radio. We are a fantastic source of information, and that's coming from a radio host, so you know you can trust it. Statements from me will never turn out to be falsehoods, I promise. Now, don't look, but I'm telling you the sky is bright, sickly green right now. Don't look. See? Look at that. You trusted me. Radio never lies. Reporters never lie. Also, you may look at the sky again. The color has passed and everything has returned to normal. For now. And please, don't call the station and ask how a newscaster broadcasting from an underground station knew what color the sky was. You don't know what I do with our security cameras, but because I'm being open and honest, I'll tell you, radio never lies. Field reporter Nadia said that this underground setup wasn't conducive to a healthy host, so I had her set up security cameras to only stream the sky and suspicious-looking trees. Then we placed screens all over the station so I can see the outside now. Very enriching. If you're worried about the safety of the station, just know that considering the nature of the stories we seek out, I'd like to think it's better to leave us open to surprises. But back to plague. Plagues of our own bodies are an intangible terror all on their own. They come from things so minuscule we can't see them on our own. They make awful, twisting changes to our own selves that we cannot control and drain us of fight and flight. For a long while, we thought they were the results of demons and bad blood, but we know now that they are natural. Unpleasant, of course, but from our realm of knowledge. But plagues of the mind? Those are something all their own. <laughs> we here at Channel Vale are well aware of the terrors of the world. The shadows that wish to harm, unholy creatures lurking just out of view, etc, etc. Just last week, we covered a story of color that took the lives of an entire family. We are no strangers to reporting on the supernatural. It's quite literally our entire shtick. However, we couldn't stop ourselves from investigating the two reports we came to today. Whether or not these reports were the result of possession or the actual work of entities is up for debate. What we can say for certain at this point is that our investigation reveals a pattern of problematic perception. Nadia, can we broadcast that the letter of the week is P? Put that on your field report. Don't look at me like that. Just write it down. Thank you. Although neither of what we report on today are pressing current issues for the community, we felt it important to share these statements as a PSA, that anyone may fall victim to the tendrils of the unknown 
and it may show itself in any form. Take that as a warning this evening. Firstly, we were approached by a man who seemed shaken, as if he'd seen a ghost. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Apparently, he'd run into a man from his past while meeting with his friends. At first, we thought nothing of it, to be honest. There didn't seem to be a story worth reporting there, just a shaken man who needed to complain about a, and pardon my phrasing here, a ghost from his past. And when we found out he didn't mean a proper ghost, I almost put down the pen and paper. However, with a little bit of digging, I ended up getting a fascinating report out of him. Nadia seemed almost impressed. But I digress. What's yet to be seen about this report is whether or not it falls into our jurisdiction as reporters on the supernatural. I suppose it's unnatural. Uh, well, I don't see why more is not better, keeping in mind mental plagues. He began his tale by sharing he was a doctor by the name of Fetz, who trained and worked closely with an anatomy professor whose name I can only remember as Mr. K. I quite literally can't recall the full thing. Every time I wrote it down in my journal, it seems to have redacted itself. Uh, well, hopefully I don't need more than that. Uh, irregardless, Mr. Fetz claimed he was in charge of intaking the subjects to be dissected and studied for this anatomy class. Human subjects brought about in the night to be set upon the slab and opened wide for all to see. A rather grisly task that I'd have to decline taking part in if asked but even the worst work must be done by someone, I guess. He maintained that despite the manner in which the subjects were brought to him, he didn't think any foul play was involved. At least until one night, when the cover of dark brought about the arrival of yet another body. Everything seemed as usual before it was revealed the identity of the dead. It was a woman Fetz knew and had spoken to just the day before. With a heavy conscience, he approached a fellow student and superior, a Mr. Wolf McFarlane. It would appear that this was the same man that he ran into just recently, years later. The man who left Mr. Fetz in such a state as to track us down. It seemed that Mr. McFarlane was indifferent to the possibility of murder. To that strange Mr. K, a body was a body. The woman was dissected as if nothing was amiss. Things remained as they were until Mr. McFarlane introduced a man named Gray to Mr. Fetz. He was allegedly a coarse man who bought several drinks for the two men as they spent an afternoon together in a tavern. They had dinner, and all seemed well, and perhaps unremarkable. Until the early morning hours of that night, when Mr. Fetz was aroused by the usual appearance of the Fairy of the Dead. Only this time, it wasn't the usual undertaker. This time, it was Mr. McFarlane. Mr. Fetz paused before he shared that the body brought to him this time was none other than the man Gray, whom they had just spent the entire afternoon with that day. Finally, the cards began to arrange themselves for Mr. Fetz, and he pieced together just what he was part of. That Wolf McFarlane told him they were lions, doing as that Mr. K was directing, pleasing him and keeping their colleagues working and learning, and only occasionally going after hunting sheep, or being complacent in their being hunted, in the case of Mr. Fetz. Despite an initial fear and hesitation, he ended up going along with it, all in an effort to please that Mr. K. It wasn't long before they got a call to collect another corpse. This time, one they'd have to exhume themselves. Some poor woman who passed and was laid to rest in a lush graveyard. The pair was tasked with disturbing her final resting place and bringing her back to be studied. 
He described the way in which they went out under the cover of night and removed the earth from above where she lay. It was pouring rain and the work was difficult, though I can't say I sympathize. The woman was unearthed and unceremoniously placed in a sack where they began the difficult journey of taking her back with them. It was during that damp, dark trek, body strung between them, that they realized something was wrong with the body they were carrying. Apparently it didn't feel as that body should have. When they got a light going and pulled back the sack, they were not faced with the old woman they had unearthed. Instead, looking back at the two men was the illuminated face of a long-dead and dissected Grey, the man they'd seen dead and sent to be studied, the man whose head they had watched be dissected. It seemed more like a confession to being an accessory to a crime than anything else at first, but of course it's that final sight that really sends this into a place for me to comment on. When we gathered this confessional report from Mr. Fetz, I at first was quite intrigued. The reappearance of a long, torn-apart corpse? How fascinating. However, as I dissected this statement, pun intended, I began to suspect that perhaps this was less a case of unnatural interference and more of a case of mental misbehavior. The vast neural network is ever malfunctional and I wonder whether or not his clear guilt manifested itself into a corpse brought back from its fate. Unfortunately, Mr. Wolf McFarlane was impossible to track down. Despite allegedly being near Mr. Fetz very recently, I could find no such man around. And of course, that mysterious Mr. K was an instant dead end. It's redacted from every spot in my notes, as if Inkspill was conscious enough to be strategic in its placement. But it's no use getting upset over spilled ink, I've had far worse interference. Besides, we aren't the police here. What's actually of detriment to this case is the disappearance of Mr. Fetz himself. It was night when he came to the station to come clean. At first, I assume that was the intent when he responded to my questions. But once he was done with his statement, he walked off into the night. Nadia actually jogged after him to see if she couldn't get anything else out of him. I don't think she was content with what we discovered, but she found he was gone. The man couldn't have left all but a few minutes before she ran out, but he had left no trace of himself in the evening air. Nadia returned empty-handed and with a scowl that didn't leave until she went home for the night. He did really just drop a sort of bombshell on us and then head on out, clearly content with sharing all he did and unwilling to give even a word more. Fortunately, Nadia did not disappear and did come back to the station the following day. I appreciate that. It takes a great deal of dedication to not disappear without a trace, I would know. Disappearance aside, I think it very well could be that the only thing manifesting itself in this report is a plague of guilt. A heavy heart and a knowledge of wrongdoing is a powerful and weathering force. I doubt it was without great strain that he came to that graveyard and stood in that downpour to exhume a woman who didn't deserve it. I am often quick to believe in an occult explanation, but this, I'm not sure. Nadia seemed to think he dreamt it in a fit of anxiety. I see, though, that it could all very well be possible if his guilt manifested itself in this corpse Freaky Friday from the physical world. A plague of guilt persists no matter if the reason lands within this world or another. To not discredit what I can only assume is the final and only confession of Mr. Fetz, I will believe something unnatural happened that fateful night, certainly aided by his remorse. Of course, take that with a grain of salt, as I'm a reporter and host, not a final say. 
I collect reports. I don't get to be the judge, jury, and executioner. Now, aside from Mr. Fetz, there was another man plagued by something he could feel nowhere but in his own head. But I must part ways with you very briefly, for other audio waves have something to share. When we return, we have a second case to sink our many, many teeth into. Whether or not those teeth are ours, or directly connected to us, is not to be concerned about. I'm still Peyton Zignego, broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, and this is still Channel Vale. Broadcasting directly from Chicago's underground, you're back with Channel Vale on WCRX 88.1 FM. During that break, we got an exciting development on the broadcast last weekend. As a refresher, we looked at a report from Miskatonic University professors on the strange meteor sample in Arkham, Massachusetts. I don't have the mental resources to understand what they were going on about, and neither did Nadia or any of my other staff, which is admittedly mostly Nadia. So, to see if any more informational depth about this case could be garnered from a detailed look at that report, I tracked down and sent it over to a trio of out-of-state scientists who seemed to have the right qualifications. I'm not exactly a judge on that, but it appeared so. Given Miskatonic University's hostility towards asking questions about the Arkham incident, I declined to press them, hence the new scientists. I just got my report back from them and looked it over, apparently asking respected scientists to look over experiments that they cannot possibly recreate is offensive. One of them wrote a note to please not ask them again unless I can provide samples as she didn't wish to lose her respect in the community. And it was allegedly mathematically impossible for them to obtain a replicable sample considering all the non-duplicatable circumstances. All that being said, good news is I got confirmation that it was in fact a realistic process to go through for testing such a sample. Another one of the scientists made a side comment that although they couldn't do the experiments, she believed that machinery necessary for such experiments would make lovely beeping music. I'm happy to have asked scientists who allow their machinery companions to whistle while they work. That made me quite happy. But I suppose then that nothing was really learned aside from the fact that we can assume they were right in reporting the sample of meteor made colors unknown to man appear. The third scientist suggested a type of mushroom to attempt to recreate the sights of those colors. I think I will politely decline that offer, considering the fate of the gardeners. Now that concludes our update on the Arkham case. I think for now we've unveiled all we can. Though I am glad to have finally contacted scientist types who take me seriously enough to send a reply. I'd like to think I will bring them on to do more research work for us sometime. Probably with actual things to test, so I do not get another letter back saying that they think I'm a disappointment. Bringing us back to the present topic, we heard of the demolition of a sweet little place called the Villa Cascana. Of course, if this is on our register, that means something has surely gone wrong there. There were several reports of the place being somewhat haunted, although we never got anything solid or confirmed until very recently. Naturally, it's right after the place gets torn down, so we're unable to investigate. No matter to us, as since we are expert reporters, we, and by we I mean Nadia, she is making rude gestures to me from the other side of the glass, not cool Nadia, I'm giving credit now. 
Nadia tracked down a man who had stayed there with friends. He wished to stay anonymous, but we were excited that he shared his side of the story with us. And by we, I mean Nadia. <sighs> he began by telling us he was staying in the villa with a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Stanley, and their friend and artist, Arthur Inglis. The latter, he informed us, didn't believe in ghosts. He did, however, make sure to mention that he does believe. He then continued to make note of the fact that the second he stepped foot inside the villa, he felt something was off. The way the light filtered through the windows was wrong, and the air was distinctly different from that outside. Whether or not it's ghosts at fault, he doesn't know, and neither will we, considering we cannot go on location to investigate anymore. He also made sure to mention that there was one extra room in the villa that remained uninhabited by guests. Whether or not specters or dreaming was at fault for what he says next, he isn't sure. I'm assuming he meant for us to say what we believe to be the cause for what he saw that night, but we can only speculate. We merely give options. Nadia told this to him, and he paused for a minute, breathing heavily. He himself was unsure what to believe, and I assume he wanted a concrete explanation. I'm not sure he'll ever get one. When night fell, and everyone went to their rooms to retire for the evening, he found himself unable to sleep. He claimed this was unusual for him. As a remedy, he went to retrieve a book to read. It was on this quest that he was faced with the empty bedroom, doors open. The curtains were pulled back for a horrid display. Illuminated by nauseatingly gray moonlight, the room's unoccupied bed was writhing. Covering the bed were hundreds of foot-long caterpillars. According to the man, they had pincers for feet, yellowish-gray skin, and no discernible face. They wriggled and writhed, making a pile out of their vile, slightly luminous flesh. He was frozen in place, only moving when they noticed his presence and began to chase after him, albeit clumsily and with little speed. He ran back to his room and proceeded to spend the night awake, kept so by the sounds of their flesh slapping against his door. As soon as dawn broke and the moon's light was replaced with the warm glow of the suns, they disappeared. Our speaker was left with no indication of whether or not it had all been a dream. Interestingly, when he met his friend, Mr. Inglis, for lunch that day, the artist had found a small caterpillar, its visage identical to what had haunted him that night, but now sized as a caterpillar should be. Mr. Inglis had no indication that this creature had terrorized his friend. Instead, he insisted that he had possibly discovered something new and gave the thing a scientific name, Cancer Inglisensis, after himself and the nature of the pincer-like feet, which reminded him of a crab's. Frightened by what he saw, our speaker threw it out and hoped it would drown in the fountain. It did not. When night came again, he went to bed, still feeling a sense of dread and danger, but falling asleep anyhow. However, he was awoken by a feeling that he had to get up. Every moment he was not moving into action, he was making things much, much worse. When he did get out of bed, he said it was already too late. There was an exhaustion in his voice, said Nadia. And something underneath it? She thought, perhaps regret? It was as if somehow he thought himself responsible for everything happening speaking as if he himself made his own night terrors a reality. According to him, the whole first floor of the villa was filled with those caterpillars. They swarmed and squirmed, covering everything with their flesh and pincers. He noted with great importance that they were forcing their way into Arthur Inglis's room, shoving their way through the door. He said he wanted nothing more than to cry out and warn his friend, but he couldn't make himself. There was nothing he could do but stand and watch with a freezing terror as they overwhelmed everything in their path. Then suddenly, the hall was empty. 
the sounds of thousands of creatures forcing their way through the villa was gone, replaced by the silence and the feeling of cold marble under his feet. Dawn's first light shone through the window. Again, he paused. Nadia always notes when the subjects of her interviews pause. Their silence is just as important as their words, she says. When he spoke again, he said that he met back with Mrs. Stanley six months after the insectile incident. That was when he found out that his friend Arthur Inglis had passed away. Cancer had claimed him. The fear deep within him was only solidified when she told him that Arthur Inglis was not the first person to stay in the villa before passing. A year before all this, their guest in that unoccupied room had died of cancer while staying at the villa. He had no clue if it was a premonition, ghosts, or simply a dream. But those two... The man then cut himself off as he started to make the connection between them. He spoke no other words, just nodded to Nadia and walked off. Apparently he'd also said all he'd needed to. She called after him, but he was finished with us. Nadia returned to me with a twisted look on her face. Whatever he was implying, it was strange enough. To dream of caterpillars. Hmm. Plagued by these creatures as he was, it's clear he was sensing something. Ghastly or not, we believe he surely could tell there was something wrong. This sense of fatality in a place already brimming with a negative sort of energy. I find it funny that both of these men walked off after handing us such stories. I believe it seems we've garnered a reputation for the sort of reporters you can come to to clear your conscience of ghosts and fears. Perhaps that's a good thing. For them, at least. It really leaves us with little to go on as reporters and investigators. Without speculating too much and twisting things out of proportion or into the realm of implausibility, I shall state with some semblance of certainty that both of these men were plagued by their own minds. Racked with guilt, they made their way to our station. Though Mr. Fetz had an active hand in his own tale, and our mystery man was more an unfortunate bystander. Whether or not these thoughts were what manifested their terrors, I don't know. I will likely never know for certain. But isn't that some sickly sort of fun? We shall never know if guilt made Mr. Fetz see the corpse of a woman as that of a murdered and dissected man, or if ghosts and fears made giant caterpillars swarm in the night. Journalism is all about the story. Explanations are secondary to the metaphysical. Much of it comes without an explanation to even come to, anyhow. All we here at Channel Vale wish to do is shed some light on these dark happenings, and occasionally ask out-of-state scientists to look over reports that they can't replicate, and get lectured about it by said scientists. Well, they have my word that next time I'll do my best to give them an experiment to do. I hope that makes them happy. We live in a time of plague. We have always lived in a time of plague, if you truly think about it. Don't think too hard, or perhaps you'll end up like our reports today. Wouldn't want that, now would we? I mean, we would, meaning Channel Vale, because that's our whole thing. But it would really be detrimental to you, so you get it. You get it. As I look out on my video feed of a setting sun and a peaceful evening, I send my wishes to you that you find yourself in a pleasant night unhaunted by terrors or fleshy, crawling caterpillars. Though, should you find yourself in a villa or graveyard, writhing with bad feelings and haunts, I do wish you would let us know so I can send Nadia as fast as possible. I would really love to have a live field report. Make your local underground radio host happy! You want that, don't you? After all, I've never lied to you. Oh, happy host indeed! I am getting a message from Nadia. 
I can't say goodbye just yet. She's... Okay, she's holding a big piece of paper against the glass between my booth and her... Ah! Oh, this is exciting news for us! If you were concerned about the fact that I mentioned last week's broadcast and you missed it, I have a remedy for you. Channel Vale will now be posting recordings of our broadcast on the internet for you to check out. Anywhere you can find podcasts, including Stitcher and Spotify, you can now find us! That way, if you miss a broadcast, you'll have access to it. Thank you for setting that up for me, Nadia. So tech savvy. You can look for us under Channel Veil. That's Veil spelled V-E-I-L. We would appreciate you going to check that out. Uploaded at the same time as we're broadcasting, you can now listen to last week's broadcast recording as well. We'll post them retroactively so Nadia has some time to convert them from live recordings into recorded recordings. I don't know how it all works. <laughs> now, I hope you'll return to hear my voice live again next week. Broadcasting, as always, from Chicago's underground, this has been Channel Vale. Today's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and both The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson and Caterpillars by E.F. Benson. I've been Peyton Zignego, letting the veil between you and the world of the unknown once again slide back into place. For now, thank you for listening. <laughs>